When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose... Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. When I lie waking all alone, recounting what I have ill done, my thoughts on me then tyrannise. Fear and sorrow me surprise. Whether I tarry still or go, methinks the time moves very slow. All my griefs to this are jolly, naught so mad as melancholy. So wrote Robert Burton in The Author's Abstract of Melancholy in his encyclopedic masterpiece, The Anatomy of Melancholy, first published 400 years ago in 1621 and described by today's guest as perhaps the largest, strangest, and most unwieldy self-help book ever written. And it certainly was large and unwieldy. It was some 500,000 words by the time of its sixth edition. But it was very popular. And in Mental Health Awareness Week, we thought it would be appropriate to think about what the 17th century thought were the causes, symptoms, and cures for melancholy. My guest is Dr. Mary Ann Lund. She is Associate Professor in Renaissance English Literature at the University of Leicester and the author of A User's Guide to Melancholy, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Dr. Lund, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this really fascinating topic. I suppose the first place to start is to think about language, because it seems from what you've written that melancholy in its modern sense 
it's not melancholy in its historic sense. I mean, they don't map exactly onto each other. And so I thought maybe we should talk about the kind of capaciousness of melancholy as a category in the 16th and 17th centuries. And maybe you can give us a steer on how we should understand it. What are the defining features of melancholy? Thank you, Susanna. I think to start with, we should just understand what the word melancholy means. So it's from the Greek and it means black bile. And that's one of the four humours in the body. So melancholy is something that's necessary as part of human life. But then there's also the disease of melancholy, which comes about through melancholy, the substance in excess. And there are also some other things that it does. And that's where melancholy becomes something that can be dangerous. So there's this really interesting sense that melancholy is part of us all, but then can tip over or can get more extreme. And then it becomes an affliction, if you like. And that sense of black bile is in the word, but it can expand towards madness, really, in its more extreme form. It's defined as fear and sorrow without a cause, but usually not frenzy. So there's some particular kinds of insanity which it doesn't have, but it's a really baggy term. And it seems interesting that the kind of classification of mental illness at this time isn't modern categories distinguished by type, but by severity. So can you give us a kind of taxonomy of mental illness? I think that's quite right. There's a kind of sliding scale, really, to melancholy because it can encompass so many different varieties. And I think probably the important thing to understand is that historically there are not lots and lots of different labels for different kinds of mental illness, mental condition, but rather melancholy could encompass them all. Far extreme, there is the kind of tipping into complete madness, complete loss of reason. And melancholy can be that. But often in cases of historic melancholy, the patient is described as being quite reasonable in more or less all respects, except for one thing that marks them out as melancholic. And that could be a tendency towards solitude and idleness. Those are two really typical things that melancholics do. But it could also be a state of delusion, a false belief about themselves. It can even be a kind of hysterical version where they're inordinately cheerful all the time. So there's all kinds of different symptoms. And whilst we might look at those conditions and say we can identify depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or PTSD, you choose not to make explicit connections with them. Why have you made that decision? When I've been writing about melancholy, I try and avoid putting labels on old cases. One thing is that I think it can be damaging to make those direct connections in terms of how we might receive them today. So I leave it to readers to make those connections. But I also think that there's a sense of respecting past people's experiences on their own terms and the way that they might understand their own minds and bodies working. But it's to do with black bile. It's to do with the body. It's rooted in your physiology, but it's also part of the so it's very much that sense of the whole person being afflicted with melancholy. And I think the other thing is that mental health is very culturally conditioned. Although we certainly see continuities and parallels, there's also a sense in which the way that we see the world is so much framed and filtered through the specifics of our culture, politics, religion, all those kind of things. I think it's important to use the words that they did. It's so interesting that what we believe about mental illness and what our culture believes about it is crucial to our understanding of it. By definition, this is an illness of the mind and therefore it manifests itself in much of what we think about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Looking back to the early modern period, The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is the great study of melancholy written in 1621 and then revised extensively, he talks about melancholy as a compound mixed malady. So it's got all kinds of different permutations to it. And it's got a spiritual dimension as well, which needs the whole physician. It needs somebody who's attentive to all those different parts of it. And I think that one of the things that perhaps we don't think about so much is that kind of maybe the spiritual side of it. Burton was a church minister as well as somebody who was very interested in this one subject. So he's interpreting it through all kinds of different lenses, if you like, at once. I suppose that's a good point to start to think about what the causes of melancholy were understood to be, because if it's a disease of the soul as much as of the mind, in this era where we've got this great rise of witchcraft trials, the supernatural is thought to be intervening in human affairs in a great way. What's the role of witches and spirits and things in their <laughs> understanding of melancholy? When Burton writes The Anatomy of Melancholy, he divides his book into causes, symptoms and cures. And at the beginning of the first section on causes, his first chapter says, God, a cause, which is throwing down the gauntlet, really, isn't it? And he goes back to the idea of the fall of humankind and that sin is what brings disease into the world. But then he expands that to look at all the different ways in which people become melancholic. And one of them is indeed, as you say, it's the supernatural. There's a whole section on witches and magicians, how they cause melancholy and stories of demoniacs for instance there's an extraordinary story of a teenage girl who is afflicted with a melancholy where all kinds of strange things happen to her she speaks in strange languages she voids up leather and hairballs all kinds of other things that we might associate with possession and that's the idea melancholy was known in the period as the devil's bath so there is this sense that through things going wrong through kind of mental instability it was also a way that the devil could get in there and cause trouble and mayhem so that there's that dimension on the other hand i should say i think Burton is actually also careful to distinguish where it's not supernatural causes. And he says sometimes a lot of people think that their melancholy is coming from the devil possessing them, when actually it's to do with imbalances in your body. Always to look for the kind of spiritual dimension can be dangerous and misleading. And I find that very interesting too, that he wants to say sometimes your mind goes out of kilter because of what's going on in your body, which is of course something we can understand today, I think. Yes, yeah, so there's this very strong connection between illnesses of the body and the mind. You've gone out of tune and things have gone slightly wrong. And how else was melancholy thought to be caused then? Anything and everything. I think that's one of the reasons why the study of melancholy is so enormous. When Robert Burton was writing The Anatomy of Melancholy, you can find more and more things. It can go back to your birth and before for starters. So actually, we've been talking about the supernatural. Your horoscope was one thing, but the stars themselves and their positions at your birth. If you've got the planet Saturn, for instance, hence the Saturnine disposition, that can make you prone to melancholy and there's nothing you can do about it, really. Upbringing was understood as an important part of it. But it talks about your parents as a cause of your melancholy in terms of the way they bring you up. Even, I should say, the circumstances of your conception could induce melancholy, which is really something you can't do much about. Where you go to school and if you have a very hard, strict education, likewise, things that are part of your environment can affect you. There's all 
kinds of things to do with where you live, what you eat. So again, environmental factors, but things that maybe you can control a little bit more. There's some wonderful bits in The Anatomy of Melancholy about whether the air is nice, clean, pure air or is noisome, to use a nice Renaissance word. If you live near a marsh, then you might be more prone to melancholy. So all kinds of things, emotional, physical, etc. There's one lovely line in your book where you talk about Burton saying that cruel words could leave a kind of poison under the skin. And these images are so powerful in helping convey something that we know to be true, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I think there is this understanding in stories of melancholy that it can be something that to others is really small. Burton says that which would be just a flea biting to another person to someone who's prone to melancholy can become the huge cause. So there's that sense of the little thing that can really spiral out of control and become a much more all-consuming condition. And you've mentioned melancholy emanating from conception or birth. Could it also be inherited? Yeah, it was thought to be inherited. Humoral disposition, so how the four humours are balanced in your body, was to a certain extent influenced by your parents it was something that could be visible as well. So if you had the melancholy look, which could be a kind of swarthy complexion, for instance, that could be an indicator that you were more prone to it. So I think there's that sense that there's certain stuff that's way beyond your control, but also the kind of emotional side of it. Sorrow and fear are the big causes and symptoms of melancholy. So causes of grief, losing somebody or being part of a traumatic event could trigger it as well. You have written that there was perceived to be an epidemic of melancholy at this time. And if we look at those portraits of Elizabethan and Jacobean men dressed in black, half in shadow, of course, I think of John Donne, looking sad and serious, I couldn't help but wonder, without wishing to sound at all inappropriate, but whether it was almost fashionable, if there's a sort of sense in which presenting yourself as melancholy was how to look a la mode. Absolutely, yes. As you say, you look at all those portraits and they are really playing up to that type of solitary and suffering, all those things, and wearing black, the kind of Tudorimos, really. Yeah. Intriguingly enough, there is this other current of melancholy, which is the desirable melancholy. And I think that's what they're playing up to. And this is the idea that goes way back to antiquity, to a collection of problems that was thought to have been written by Aristotle, though probably weren't. And one problem says, why is it that those people who were distinguished in art, literature, politics, etc., and it's you know, the question hangs in the air. And then Marsilio Ficino, Italian Renaissance philosopher, poet, writer, etc., picks up on this and writes a much larger text about it in his De Vita, where he really explores this idea of melancholy gene. And I think it's that strand that you see in those portraits of young Tudor aristocratic gentlemen becomes, as you say, a la mode to be depicted in that light. I think also there is that sense of political resistance that you might see in that in certain portraiture, the idea of expressing dissent. You know, you're on your own, you're kind of wearing black, rather like Hamlet in, in court when his father has died and everybody else is having a party and you're on the sidelines so it's fashionable yes it's a sign of genius but it's also there's a touch of threat i think to melancholy oh that's interesting so everyone's trying to look like a slightly threatening genius (laughs) did edison really take credit for things he didn't invent Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? 
And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from History Hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's also talk about erotic melancholy because for Burton and his contemporaries and I wonder if there's something in this with those Elizabethan men as well perhaps but lovesickness is not just metaphorical is it? No, lovesickness is something that is a whole giant section of Burton's book, its own genre of melancholy. He calls it heroic melancholy. And there are various ways we might understand melancholy of the hero, but also as erotic. And he goes through all the sort of causes, symptoms and prognostics and cures of that too, including jealousy as a symptom. So love melancholy is something that can afflict people of either sex, but particularly the young, of course. It's often associated with falling in love with someone you shouldn't, somebody who might be not your social class, for instance, and a kind of disproportionate infatuation with someone. He goes as far as animals falling in love. And even palm trees, there's a wonderful, famous story in the anatomy of melancholy of two palm trees that bend towards one another, such as the great power of love. So love melancholy is that kind of great tradition of love stories. There's lots of fun to be had in there as well. And in the anatomy of melancholy, he uses... Chaucer, Shakespeare, all kinds of things as his source material. He's not just looking at medical stuff there. So it's a manifestation of courtly love taken to an extreme. And the kind of green sickness as well, that thing we get in Romeo and Juliet of basically a lack of sexual satisfaction because melancholy as a larger mental affliction can be caused by not having enough sex or too much. So he thinks that virgins and maids and nuns are, which is rather at the opposite end of the spectrum from the courtly love tradition. But I suppose that idea of possibly the kind of unrequited affection or the people who go far too much into it, which can be dangerous as well. 
And you have, or at least Burton has, a magnificent euphemism for excessive sexual activity. Tell us that. It's chamber work. He tells this wonderful story about an old man who marries a young wife in a hot summer and overexerts himself, dries himself out with too much chamber work and as a result goes mad. So the cure is to stop that, of course. But it's one of those lovely examples of how the humoral system becomes very literalised. You're literally using too much bodily fluids, <laughs> saints, sweating it out to and making your body dry. Melancholy is the cold, dry, black humour, yes. <laughs> and although there are fewer cases of female melancholy in Burton and in the sources, there is this link made as I understand it, between melancholy and the menstrual cycle, isn't there? Yeah, so female melancholy, you certainly do find people being diagnosed with it in the period. And one of the things Burton says about it is that sometimes women are more extreme in their symptoms than men. There is that sense, perhaps, that women are believed to be less able to control themselves through the power of reason or something like that. It's often to do with cases of love and infatuation. And with the menstrual cycle, it's that idea that humoral flow is less controllable too among women because they menstruate, they have a monthly period, and that can often lead to an imbalance of the humours. It can knock them out of kilter. He also says that there are stages in a woman's life. So he talks about when women get older with the menopause and that kind of blocking up of the humours can lead to an imbalance. So older women can become more prone to it too. I think there's a link between melancholy and old age. You get older the idea is your body starts to cool, you lose that vital heat. And because melancholy is cold, that's where people naturally tend towards. And so women might be more prone to that than men. Although that's not most women's experience of their periods ceasing. But it's one of those areas where you've got early modern thought and modern medical thought and a kind of Venn diagram overlapping, because it's certainly true that our ideas of melancholy and the menstrual cycle or its cessation do seem to manifest at the same time, if for completely different reasons from what Burton's suggesting. Another symptom that is more extreme end of melancholy is one famous one, which is of the delusion of being made of glass. Famously, you've got the case of Charles VI of France, who refused to let anyone come near him or touch him. But what's fascinating is that this delusion seems to have recurred in other people as well. Do you have any idea why glass? Why this particular delusion? It's such an interesting question. Why that sense of being brittle and breakable? becomes prevalent in stories of delusion. And yes, as you say, you certainly get it. I think in early modern medical thinking, they often don't make that jump from here are the symptoms and therefore there's a kind of psychological reason behind it. We might see the fear of persecution or assassination. And as you see, Charles VI of France, you mentioned that story, for instance, wanting to keep people at arm's length. And the one explanation that you do get in early modern medical thinking about the glass delusion is that glass is a dry, hard, substance and melancholy is a dry humour. So if you've got too much melancholy in your body, it might be that you have delusions of a dry kind. So that sort of brittle, shatterable nature of glass. The other thing is that they see delusions as linked to your status in life and your occupation. So another delusion of a different kind that Burton retells is a story of a baker in Ferrara who believes that he's made of butter and Therefore, he's terrified of going near his baker's oven because he'll melt. It's one of those 
classic stories where the delusion is clearly linked to the job he does. And so I think with the glass delusion, it can be sometimes people who are of a social position to own glassware and particularly those kind of very fancy, delicate glass objects who then might start to associate with it. I think the glass delusion in general, it's fascinating because there's so much kind of imaginative scope in that story. There's a short story by Miguel de Cervantes, for instance, of somebody who's got this glass delusion. It turns up in English drama as well. And I think there's that fascination with transparency as well. People sometimes believe that their chest is made of glass so that people can look through and see what's going on inside. And I think that tells you so much about the idea of permeability. And Hamlet says that within which passes show, perhaps the fear is that people can indeed see what's inside you. These delusions, these manifestations are so revealing of the time, aren't they? They give away so much. And to jump around, but to another case, which I think is really interesting that you write about, is the idea of melancholy's most dangerous symptom, the loss of hope. Can you tell us the notorious case of Francis Spira? Yes, I think the case of Francis Spira was particularly haunting during the 16th and 17th century because it's a story that doesn't have a happy ending. So Francis Spira was early 16th century northern Italy and it's a story that's about religion and religious divide. He's hauled up before the Inquisition and recants his Protestantism because he's in fear of his life and he's in fear of his family being punished. And once he's done it, he's forced to this point is he goes home. He basically hears the voice of God condemning him to eternal damnation. And he falls sick. There's a story about his kind of collapse. So it's a literal physical collapse as well as a mental collapse. And he basically wastes away over many weeks. During that time, lots of people come and visit him and try and persuade him out of this. And they say, you are not condemned to death. You are not damned. That doesn't happen in life. God forgives you. And Spira's a lawyer. So he knows how to argue the impossible case, which is his own case, his belief, absolutely convinced belief that he is going to hell. And so every time they come up with a reason to hope, he crushes it. It becomes a real cause célèbre. Is used on both sides as a kind of bit of Catholic propaganda, but also as Protestant propaganda because he eventually wastes away. Some versions of the story have it that he actually takes his own life. Other versions, it seems to be that he simply dies. He refuses to eat or drink anymore. And that's the end of him. But on the Protestant side is the story of apostasy. This is what happens if you reject your faith in order to save your skin, simply. And the reason that it's seen as kind of part of melancholy is melancholy in its more extreme case, that is the very dangerous prognostic that you may end up losing all hope. And indeed, Burton recounts several stories, at least, of people who do end up taking their own lives as a result of it. So we've thought of causes and symptoms. And to follow Burton's schematic, we now need to think about cures and remedies. What does Burton suggest might be a remedy for melancholy? All kinds of things. And I think this is one of the things that's so fascinating about the wide range, the kind of therapies that we see today. So, for instance, talking to people would be one. Burton says that friends are a cure and company. Finding somebody who cares for you and will stop you from your kind of predisposition towards being on your own. Music is a cure. Something that's moderately cheerful, looking at nice pictures as well, dietary things too. So some melancholy can be caused by eating 
dark meats or it can be exacerbated by it certainly or bad air so getting out in the fresh air going for walks and getting moderate exercise and eating sensibly are things that Burton suggests. And Burton was a scholar, an Oxford scholar who loved books. He thinks that the pleasures of study are really good for melancholy as well. These all sound very sensible so far. Go for a walk, talk with friends, listen to some therapeutic music. It all Mm. sounds good. Indeed. But the other thing is, of course, you have to be very careful that you don't choose a cure which is in fact related to the cause. So he says music is wonderful for most people, except if you have the kind of melancholy which could be made even worse by listening to bright music that might make you go into an even more kind of mania. So there is that. The idea is that everything needs to be very carefully individualised. There are, of course, herbal treatments and all those things too, which can get quite complicated. There are simples, which is things like borage, for instance, is one hellebore the plant hellebore gives all kinds of warnings about the people who self-medicate let's say they go off to the apothecary's shop and get far too much and overdose and get very sick indeed so he he puts some warnings in there about that other things actually baths warm baths that kind of rather like spa therapy that sense of being nice and doing things that will cheer you up and they definitely feature in burton's collection of cures Are there any cures that seem now dangerous or deeply misguided? Yes, absolutely. There are some that he mentions while also registering how risky they can be. There is bloodletting, as there is, of course, in the treatment of lots of illnesses, which can be done in certain circumstances, but actually... Burton says letting somebody's blood could really imbalance the humours, make everything worse. Another one would be the surgical cues. So he talks about things like trepanning, for instance, boring the hole in the skull to release the kind of pent-up humours. And he tells stories of people where accidentally fracturing their skull has made somebody who is mad. There was this story of someone who falls over, breaks their head open and then suddenly becomes reasonable and then it heals again and it all goes back to where he was before. That's the real extreme. Clearly some of the chemical concoctions would definitely not want to try at home, I would say. But there are some more pleasant ones you could choose if you wish to. (laughs) And I was struck by the sort of imagination and empathy that was present in some of the forms of treatment Tell us the story about the man from Siena who feared that he might drown the whole town. That is quite a story because we've been thinking about delusions as an aspect of melancholy. Melancholy is really a disease of the imagination. So it's a part of the mind that kind of goes wrong and you get some funny ideas. And in this case, there's a gentleman in the town of Siena in Italy who believes that if he urinates, he is going to flood the entire city and so he decides that the only solution is not to go to the toilet at all which is not going to last so his physicians try and persuade him first and fail in that and then they come up with this sort of clever ruse they decide that they're going to try and create this theatrical experience of the town being on fire the town fire alarm system is the ringing of the church bells so they get them ringing they actually start a fire in the house next door they get all their servants to run around going fire And then they get the town worthies, the mayor and the members of the aldermen, to run up to this chap's bedroom where he's lying on his sickbed and say, you're the only one who can save us and you know how you need to do it. So this is an interesting human fire hydrant, basically. And he urinates and is instantly cured. 
And that's something you get in common with a lot of these stories of delusions that are told by physicians, that there's that kind of instant moment of a kind of breaking of the spell, if you like, which happens with him. So stories of people who believe they were dead and then someone dresses up as a corpse next to them and starts eating their lunch and says, oh, did you not know the dead eat too? Of course we do. And the moment the sick person eats, they believe that they're alive again. There are all kinds of extraordinary stories like that that get circulated and recycled. It shows such compassion to treat a disease of the imagination with the imagination and all these people participating in the cure. Yeah, to an extent. I think there is that sense of sometimes of tricking people. And there's a bit of the doctor's arrogance, really, perhaps in some of those stories. There are these people that we can, you know, at the drop of a hat, we can knock them out of it. But at the same time, I think, yeah, I think there's that sense of entering into their world. And that in order to work through melancholy, you need to get there from the inside. I think that's something that Burton does in The Anatomy of Melancholy as well. He talks about himself as being a sufferer of melancholy. And so he's writing, he says, a right of melancholy, being busy to avoid it. But also he wants to help people. And I think there's a sense of him as a compassionate writer, working through all of these causes and symptoms and cures to help himself, but also because what he says out of a fellow feeling, which really comes through in the book. And in terms of the stories that Robert Burton has collected and is telling, how much do you think we can trust them as examples of things that actually happened? Or are we dealing in large part with fables? Some of them absolutely are taken from medical textbooks and Burton read very widely. He wasn't a professional physician at all. He wasn't an MD, but he was gathering stories from across Europe. So um, this is Western medicine in the May and case books from Italy, from Germany, etc., all over the place. However, he's an omnivorous reader. And so he's bringing in stories from poetry as well. He quotes Shakespeare, he quotes Chaucer. And there is a sense that nothing is really beyond him beyond this of his interests and I think there's a kind of playfulness really in the way that he explores melancholy as a human condition he says you know melancholy in its broader sense it's the character of mortality and so you know why should I not write about things that come up in myth as well as historical things he brings stories of royalty but also stories of poorer people and from distant things and stuff that's very close to home and that's contemporary to him and it's all within his scope and finally, given that this is quite a big text, but it sounds like it's often quite fun, and also given that we've got somebody who you've just said suffer from melancholy writing it, who thinks that study can ease melancholy and mirth can ease melancholy, how much would you recommend people to read The Anatomy of Melancholy today? I think it's just an infinitely intriguing book that has so much to say about the human condition and about humans throughout history and the different ways we've responded to it. As you say, it's huge. It's a really thick tome. It doesn't need to be read cover to cover. I think it's one of those wonderful books for dipping into. He tells little bits of Latin and then little bits of English and he's always going from source to source and packing in more and more examples. But it's a very absorbing book. I think there's that sense of kind of curiosity that's 
underpins the way that he approaches everything. He describes himself, this wonderful phrase, as a ranging spaniel. He says, I just go after everything and I'm taking you with me on this journey across all these different landscapes. And that's how it feels as a reading experience too, that you were taken down into these odd little pathways that you hadn't expected and odd stories that kind of stick on your clothes like burrs, if you like. It sounds tremendous fun and I haven't sat down and read it, so I will try. But for those who are daunted by its size, they should pick up. Oh, A User's Guide to Melancholy by me, Marianne Land. Absolutely, that would be great, Susanna. And of course, (laughs) those who read Burton should definitely read you as well to have a commentary on it. So there we go. (laughs) Everybody should turn to A User's Guide to Melancholy. Thank you for a very entertaining focus on melancholic subject. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.